Good morning, everyone. Great to be here in Morinville again, and I love the opportunity to come and be amongst you guys, and so thanks for having me. Uh, Liz Melvin is over in Bonacord today. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm pastoring out in our multi-site in Bonacord. It's about 15 minutes away from here. You can do it in 12. Depends how fast you drive, um, how much of a rush you're in. Uh, but yeah, I'm out in Bonacord, and uh, every now and then I have the privilege of coming and being here in Morinville. And I get to see everyone, so that's lovely. Uh, Pentecost Sunday today as well. Just uh, thought I'd remind us that it is Pentecost Sunday today. And uh, what a significant moment for the church, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to go and be a witness to the world. And so I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that today is Pentecost Sunday. So I said to say, Holy Spirit, come as much as you want and do whatever you want to do today. Uh, Certainly as we share the Word of God and as we worship together, we want the Holy Spirit here and As we were singing the song, um, Slaves to Fear, I know that's one that we sing often, and today it was really cool because I just felt like there was something on that song, and so I just wanted to mention, I I guess, you know, we think about fear, uh, the result of fear is terror. That's the expression of fear. There's a genuine sense of terror, and that's how that word translates, but the deeper root of fear and terror is the feeling of inadequacy, and fear is actually rooted in inadequacy, in inadequacy to deal with, that's a real hard word to keep saying, inadequacy to deal with whatever situations you find yourself in. And, you know, I feel like that's some of the theme of that might even just permeate today as we think about that song. And as we declare that in our worship together as, as, as a corporate church, that we're saying, you know, we're not no longer slaves to the, that feeling of being inadequate. Is that because of Jesus, we have been adopted and redeemed into his family, of which we become a part of his redemptive story in the kingdom of God. And I think as we sing that song, that if you, know, if you feel inadequate today, I hope that as we take communion and share the word, that it may move you back from a place of feeling that way, like feeling like maybe you don't feel terror, but that feeling of being like, I can't cope with the situation. I'm finding myself on a path where I'm disconnected from God's story again. I'm hoping that today as we sing that song and as we take the theme of inadequacy to being a child of God and being reminded of that, and being a part of God's church today. That's what I want to talk about a little bit. So I thought I'd mention that. Maybe that will just plant a seed in your heart as we explore the word today. Um, And as we explore communion today, I asked specifically to take the service today with communion in mind, because I just wanted to, um, yeah, just share a little bit of my heart, because communion is one of those funny things that I'm just going to be honest with myself, and maybe you can identify with it. I know its significance, like I really do, because it's been taught to me, but sometimes I forget I forget its significance because I know it and we do it. And I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes it just sort of, it just becomes about like trying to conjure up this emotional response to like, yeah, I know I'm a sinner and I'm taking the cup and the juice. And, and, and sometimes I forget the bigger part of the story of which it finds itself in. And maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe you can identify. Maybe communion is already really profound for you. But if I'm honest, I find that like my participation in it isn't always powerful because we lose sight sometimes of the bigger meaning. When I was a kid, I hated brushing my teeth. I hated the toothpaste, the pasty toothpaste. You know what I'm talking about when you brush your teeth? And when I was little, I just didn't understand why I had to brush my teeth. It was annoying. My mum and dad told me I had to brush my teeth. I knew I had to do it, and I'd sometimes compel myself to brush my teeth, but most often I'd pretend to brush my teeth and I wouldn't do it. Because I didn't like it. It made no sense to me. It was just annoying. And it was because mum and dad told me to do it. Until I started seeing people, and now I can identify, with very yellow teeth. And I began to realize that brushing your teeth actually has a meaning more than just brushing your teeth. 
And when I understood that it had to do with health and looking after your mouth, I brush my teeth twice a day, and I'm not lying. I love brushing my teeth now. I floss, I brush, I mouthwash every now and then, not all the time, but I love it. And I love the feeling of my clean teeth. Now, my teeth are still a little yellow, but I understand that brushing your teeth, the act and the practice of doing it each day, every day, actually finds itself in a bigger story. It makes sense when you understand that you're doing it for your health. Do you get what I'm saying? Like anything, communion, baptism, singing songs, giving, offering, whatever it is, when we lose sight of the story, when we lose sight of participating in these practices that actually make sense in God's story, they just become things that we do. Can you understand that? Can you identify that in your church religious experience that sometimes you just lose sight of why you do what you do? Well, I hope today to kind of use communion as a way to re-engage our story as a church. It's really powerful. And if you come from a different tradition, there'll be different ways in which communion makes sense. And I hope that today within our tradition and with, with who we are, that maybe we can just rejuvenate communion a little bit so that we can reconnect to the bigger story. And I'm going to start by just sharing a story from the Bible. I think that's a good place to start. And it's uh, from Luke chapter 24. So let's read together. And then we're going to come back to this story, but just to plant some seeds of thought as we go forward. Luke 24, it's a story of the road to Emmaus. And Jesus had died. He's been resurrected. The tomb is empty. They discover this. They're wondering what is going on. Was, he, was his body taken away? What, what's taken place? They didn't really grasp what was taking place. And then we find this really cool story. I love this story. And I want you as best as you can. I know it's hard, but I feel like when we come to the Scripture, it's important that we begin to embody the Scripture in ourselves and not just look at it from afar and be like, oh, those silly disciples. They don't get it. I wonder if we can just try our best to just position ourselves in the story a little bit and see if it makes sense. Now, on that same day, this is Luke 24, 13 to 35. On that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, and it was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside of them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now that is so cool. The resurrected Jesus. And we can't go into it. This tells you something about the resurrected body and the resurrected Jesus. They just couldn't quite grasp what it was going to look like. And Jesus himself comes alongside of them. Now remember, and we'll highlight this point, they're walking away from Jerusalem. Just keep that in mind. And they've gone several miles, probably two hours, probably three hours if you're me and you're walking really slow. But they, they, they began a walk two hours away from Jerusalem, the place where God's people are, and they're walking, talking about Jesus, and Jesus himself shows up. We'll unpack that a little bit more later on. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood, their faces were downcast. Remember, inadequacy, fear, all those themes. They're downcast, something had happened. And one of them named Cleopas asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all over the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So much there to think about. Their hope was in the one who would redeem Israel. All Jews had hope in the Messiah who would redeem Israel. And here we just get a sense that they realized that it wasn't Jesus. Because he didn't fulfill what they thought the Messiah was going to fulfill. 
which was the overthrow of the Roman Empire, of course, and the establishment of Israel as a political powerhouse that would then be restored under that system. And so they're downcast. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. They're walking away from God's people. They're on this journey, and they're standing there talking about Jesus to Jesus. So much to think about even in that. The chief priests, obviously, they crucified him. He was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And here's this epic sermon from Jesus. And they, this is what he does. I just lost my page, sorry. He began with Moses and all the prophets explaining to them what was said in the scripture concerning himself. There's no New Testament here, folks. Jesus begins to unpack the entire Old Testament and say, did you not really get the story? Somehow they had this idea of a political system that was going to replace the system they were in and give them the power and control, and they missed the suffering servant message and the message of justice and the message of deliverance that Jesus Christ would come and deliver to those in oppression. They missed the narrative. And so Jesus says, from Moses onwards, here's the story, guys. You've got a wrong idea. This is the whole message of the kingdom, really. So as they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. Is he being cheeky? I don't know. I'm just going to pretend and keep walking. You know, I, I don't know what he's doing, but it, it seems as though he's just sort of pretending to keep going. And Are they going to let me in or what? what's going on here? And they do. Jesus continued as though he was going. They urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went to stay with them. And here's where we're going to sort of focus on a little bit later. When he's at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Remember, that's two hours away. They got up and immediately returned back to the place that they needed to be. There they found the 11, they assembled together, they said it's true, the Lord has risen, he's appeared to Simon. The two then told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he, everyone say it. I love this story. I think it's such a cool story. I could just sit in this story for a long time because there's so many themes I think emerge that I can see myself in. Talking about Jesus, having an intellect about Jesus, wondering what God's doing and yet Jesus is walking alongside of them. And they knew all the right things. And yeah, I know I am probably going to trip on that. Sorry, guys. I'll do that. The point is, have you ever lost the plot before? That's something I've said here before. But have you ever lost the plot? And do you know what I mean when I ask you that question? Have you ever lost the plot of your story? Lost the plot of God's story in your life? Have you ever gotten on off the road that God has you on? Have you ever lost the plot? In a story, there's a plot. There's a place you find yourself in, a story, a narrative that's being written. Have you ever found yourself getting off that story and losing what the story is? Gotten on the wrong path, walked away from Jerusalem, wondering about Jesus. Have you ever found yourself 
just sort of getting off the path a little bit. I love that because I think that we're invited into new life in the kingdom with the body of Christ. We are called by God into a redemptive kingdom stories and then we begin to live a life within the kingdom story that is a cross-shaped life that is marked by the road that Jesus walked. With him as Lord of our life, the church reflects a cross-shaped existence of the kingdom. But have you ever found yourself losing the plot? Coming off that story, disconnecting from God's people, disconnecting from God's story. That's why I love this story, because these guys are a picture of that, I think. Have you ever gotten confused and submitted yourself to the world's path again? On that wrong path, that path that just deviates off course and you find yourself over here losing the plot. I love these guys because there's a genuineness about them, genuineness about them. They're discussing the events. They intellectually know about Jesus. They know what he accomplished. They remember the events of yesterday, yet somehow they weren't able to see what God was doing. In fact, they didn't even see Jesus walking alongside of them. And they begin to sort of move in their own direction when they lost sight of God's story, when they lost sight of the people of God, when they lost sight of what Jesus was doing and had accomplished, they begin to move in their own direction. And it's the opposite direction of the place they were meant to be. And I love this story as we place ourselves in their shoes, walking and talking about Jesus, but somehow finding our lives just shifting and, 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 and sort of being redirected in a different way. I think this can happen where I, where we, can move away ever so slightly on the wrong path, away from the story of God and his people. It can happen so subtly, can't it? You still know Jesus, you have an intellectual idea of Jesus, but this subtle direction where you find yourself just deviating off the path that God has designed for you. Am I the only one? Help me out here, folks. Can you identify the wrong path in your life where you just deviate? This happens so often. Something significant happens at the end of this story, though, and it's more than just intellect, and it's more than just words. There's this participation, that they participate in something with Jesus, and it gave them the eyes to see, and the faith was restored, because we're talking about faith forward, and it set them back on task with God's people. There was something that they did that they participated in with Jesus that was more than just intellect. It was more than just understanding who Jesus was. There was an action and a participation that reshaped them and set them back on the direction that they were called to go. And I think as we explore communion today and its role in the church, I want to suggest that communion is a practice. It's an act in which we get to participate with Jesus in this act to get back on the right path together as God's people, just like brushing your teeth is isolated, but when you know the story, you participate in it because it's connected to something bigger. So I want to explore it a bit today. Matthew's 26, 17 to 30. Jesus uh, establishes at the Last Supper communion. We're going to read really quickly here. He sends them into a town and says, Passover's happening. Go to this house. Go to this place. And so when evening came, Jesus was sitting at the table with his disciples. While they're eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were sad and began to say, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who dipped his hand in the bowl will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. I love how Jesus is always pointing back to the Old Testament. Do you notice that? As it was written about me, as it has been written. He's always pointing back to what the story was. And we'll get there in a minute. And Judah said, you know, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus says, you've said so. So while they're eating, Jesus took the bread 
And when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it, new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Everything we do, folks, finds its meaning within a story. And what was the story here that Jesus was a part of in the Passover? He's having a feast, singing songs, participating in an event which reminded the people of God about the story that they were a part of. And that story was a story of deliverance. It was a story of deliverance from the oppression and the slavery to which they found themselves under in Egypt. And they would partake in this festival, not just to say, thank you, God, but it was a reminder and a participation in reenacting the story. Reenacting the story, participating together as a corporate group of people to remind themselves of the story of deliverance. That they were delivered from the power and oppression and the forces of slavery into a new land of promise together as God's people. And so when Jesus takes communion and establishes communion, it's not an isolated act. It finds itself in a story which is about deliverance of God's people. And how many of you know the whole Bible is really a story of God's deliverance power, pointing to Jesus Christ? And I'm going to suggest that some things are done better than words. Some things are done better than taught, like a hug or a kiss or a handshake. There are things that we do that we participate in that you can't intellectually describe, can you? That we do acts, we participate in things, and as we participate in communion, we have to understand that it finds itself in a narrative. Because when we lose sight of the deliverance of God, guess what? It becomes about you and your sin. And about the cup and the cracker and the, the, the kind of half-tasty cracker that you can't wait to drink the juice. You, oh, hello. You've got a dry mouth. And I, I'm, I know it sounds facetious. I'm not trying to dishonor communion. What I'm saying is sometimes our experience, when we lose sight of its meaning, we find ourselves becoming individualistic. Because the story of Passover, the story of deliverance, is a story of God's people being delivered. Not individuals. But God's collective people being brought out of slavery into life. And the participation at Passover was a whole celebration and feast with meaning that found itself in retelling the story. When we lose sight of that, it becomes about attacking on a communion at the end of a service in which we just sit there and try and conjure up. I don't know if this is you, but I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I've done some stuff wrong, so please forgive me, God. It becomes about us. But I want to suggest today that communion is a powerful and profound act that we participate in within a story. There's a story of deliverance, church. Deliverance from slavery and oppression. They were called as Israel to be God's people, to be a faithful witness to the redemptive power of the God of Israel. To live as a community of people who have been redeemed and restored out of slavery into new life where God is at the center. That's what they celebrated. Community. And this story permeates the entire Bible. You only got to think about Rahab. You know the story of Rahab? Prostitute, living in Jericho, living in the, the fortified city of the enemy, living a life as a prostitute, disconnected from any life, any source of community with God's people. 
She identifies God's story with the spies. She just says, you know what, you guys, I just know that your God is a bigger God. And God says she's saved. He redeems her. So when, that, when the enemy stronghold fell, she was rescued and not just delivered, she was delivered from that into the community of Israel, in which she becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Rahab, a prostitute in oppression and slavery, was redeemed, rescued, and delivered from slavery, delivered from oppression into life with community. The whole Bible is a story of God's wonderful deliverance, justice, bringing people out of the systems of oppression, out of the systems of poverty and power, and redeeming them into God's story. And that's Passover, that's communion, that's the celebration of this feast, is the retelling of this powerful and profound story that points throughout the entire Old Testament to God's deliverance activity. And now Jesus says, now I continue that through me so that you can be delivered into your story, into God's redemptive plan, which is the kingdom of God that he has preached his entire life in ministry. This is what Jesus does. Understanding the past events, the words spoken about him, he appropriates the reality of those past events of deliverance into the ushering and inauguration of this new kingdom which has entered time and space, it is here on earth, and he's also anticipating the redemptive events that are to come. Consider Isaiah 9, 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Joy is of the kingdom. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As people exult when dividing plunder for the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping, tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for fire, for a child has been born to us, a son has been given. Authority rests on his shoulders and his name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of peace, his authority shall grow continually. There shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. He will establish justice and righteousness. See, Jesus knew the prophetic nature of his calling, what was spoken about through Isaiah and through the whole Old Testament about the one who would bring deliverance for the oppressed. For the ones who had been oppressed and, and, and been held in slavery and been held captive, Jesus knew that his delivering justice would come. We think justice is vengeance. It's not. Justice is not vengeance, getting what you deserved. It's not that at all. Justice is tied to God's delivering activity. And we see it through the whole Bible. And then we see Jesus come and open the scroll from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to what? Proclaim good news to the who? To the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set oppressed people free. You better believe that Jesus knew the story that he was participating in. And it was a story of deliverance and redemption for those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor 
And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back, dropped the mic and said, you've heard it today in this, in this reading. It was a boom moment. Jesus validated his whole ministry at the very beginning by opening the scroll and pointing to the story. This is what I'm participating in. It's more than a story of going to heaven when you die. That's part of it. That's an important part of the story. But you better believe Jesus stepped back and said, hang on, there's a, there's a gospel, a good news story, which everything finds its meaning in. And it's the story of God's wonderful deliverance and his justice for those who are oppressed, those who are broken, those who are poor, those who can't see, those who are naked and don't have clothes. And I'm glad you all do today. You're glad I do too, trust me. And this is what Jesus does to be the delivering Messiah for the modern day oppressed and crushed. And then he lives the story. He not only validates it by saying, this is the story I'm a part of, he then, then goes and lives it out. He was preoccupied with the kingdom. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle, humble, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and the burden is light. And he's saying to those who are under the burden of the law, and not just the burden of the law, but the burden of those who held to the law and used it to oppress and marginalize the people of Israel. Jesus is saying the yoke that you're wearing is an oppressive yoke because those in power are using it to keep you out of community with God. And Jesus says, you need to learn to take my yoke. It's a different yoke than the burden of oppression because my yoke is easy and you can be free. Jesus knows his story, you guys. He knows what he's participating in. And he establishes it with that Isaiah scroll. And then he lives it out and he preaches it and teaches it. And he demonstrates it. Tax collectors, women, Samaritans, adulteresses, lepers, demon-possessed, blind, broken-hearted, paralyzed, people excluded from Jewish worship, whilst the whole time standing up against the systems of power and control that kept them out of God's house. Jesus' ministry was a delivering ministry, executing justice, not for the powerful, but to say he will bring the high places low and the low places high. And he begins to live that life, bringing justice, delivering justice to all those who are on the outside because of the power and oppression. Levi, a tax collector, isolated from Jewish worship, living in sin, meets Jesus and is delivered into communion with God. And he writes the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus comes and he turns the tables at, at the temple because the Jewish people had entered into the court of the Gentiles where the people of outside of communion could come and actually worship God which would have been good if Israel was living the story God called them to reflect God's heart. They were welcome to come and worship. But you know what they did? They set tables up to push out all the Gentiles. And what they did is they set up tables to sell offerings to the, for the sacrifice at extreme inflation. And the people buying the offering for the sacrifice were the poor and marginalized. The ones that couldn't even afford it in the first place. The Jewish people came and set up tables, pushed out the Gentiles... You better believe they began to lose the plot. And Jesus comes and he was not happy about it, was he? Because he was saying to them something. You guys are missing the point. You are keeping your power to keep those oppressed further oppressed. It goes against the entire heart of God in his heart for justice, which is to bring deliverance for the poor, to bring 
down the high places. But the people in the high places don't like that, do they? <laughs> That's a tough one. That's why we see the Pharisees grinding their teeth, gnashing their teeth, getting angry at this guy who was actually coming to challenge the system that had power over the marginalized and poor. And so we, I say all this to say, we come back to the Passover meal. We come back to this table where he's with this diverse group of people. And Jesus, fully aware of the story that he's in, brings the story of deliverance and justice into the moment. And he reminds them of the story that he is coming to fulfill from the Old Testament. And then he invites them into participation with this story through communion. He begins to take all of this stuff and he brings it down to this moment where he says, now the blood and the bread, the wine and the bread, the blood and the body is now your participation in this God-delivering story. We can't disconnect it from the Old Testament, I think. We can't disconnect things from the bigger story to make it mean what we want it to mean. Because when we do that, we throw away so many good things and then we rebuild the story on what we want it to mean. That happens with communion. It becomes about you and your sin and, and all this stuff that becomes individualistic at the cost of the person next to you. And Passover and deliverance was always about the community of God's people being delivered. Hope it's making sense. <laughs> Glad Pastor Greg likes it. That's really, that's really what matters. <laughs> okay, I'm getting passionate. I'm getting sweaty. We're getting there. We're, we're over halfway. You're doing well. Okay, so blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and Jesus continually is teaching his followers to live a way that is the deliverance way. The Good Samaritan is a great story um, because it's someone who Jesus just points out as the worst person who could bring deliverance for a Jewish person. But the whole highlight of the story is someone who was robbed and stripped of their identity and were left in a ditch. And those who should have had the power and should have responded, Jesus uses it. Remember, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's not a real story. But he's highlighting the thing that these guys actually crossed the road and moved away from. Yeah, I told you. You warned me about that, someone, Don. And then this Samaritan guy doesn't move away from, he moves toward. How many of you know that's the word for compassion? Did you know that? Compassion means to move toward. And he moves toward this guy who's laying in the ditch and, and he gets down on his knees, and then he binds his wounds. He anoints him with oil. He does a quick fix, right? Gets him to a place where he then delivers him from that place in the ditch to the inn. You're all watching the cord now. He brings this guy who has been robbed and beaten, and he brings him, which is a picture of deliverance. It's an act of bringing him from his place of desperation into health and healing. I would suggest that's the heart of God. But who does Jesus commission to do that? He says to the guy who asked the question, he said, now you go and do the same. And what he's doing is he's saying, who is your neighbor? What does this thing look like? And he uses that story to suggest that we become the actors in this drama of deliverance. Where it's not just about us, but we begin to move toward those who are broken and not away from, and we help them, binding their wounds, bringing deliverance to a place of healing and restoration. Thank God for Rahab that the Israelites' people did that because we had the blessing of Jesus from her lineage. So when we begin to understand this deliverance story, I've got to tell you, communion isn't just bread and wine. You, you actually become a participant in this unfolding drama of the kingdom of God to which God invites us into. 
Jesus brings newness to the Passover story that he points that the fullness of deliverance is in him. Because on the cross, Jesus actually, while he was the sacrifice for sin, at the same time, he defeated the power of sin and death. That's pretty huge. He took our place, we know that, and we know he died on the cross. And at the same time, through that act, he defeated the power of sin and death in our life. Which means the oppression was defeated in Jesus Christ. So when we feel inadequate or have fear and we sing those things and we participate in communion, it reminds us of the deliverance of Jesus Christ. That he defeated the power of sin and death. And in that new life, we're called to a task as his body. And it's a commitment and a community of believers that are called to live this life. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, 2 Corinthians, we're to be reconciled to God through Christ. And then he gave us the ministry of what? How many of you know that we're invited into the God story because of his deliverance activity in your life, delivering you from oppression, death, sin, slavery, old man, old woman life, into, by binding your wounds, delivering you into the community of believers. Not, not as your own person. He delivers you to an obligation to God's people, community. And that's what he does. And he says, you're a new creation in Jesus. Now, church, now that you're reconciled, you are the ambassadors for this new way of life. You're the ambassadors of reconciliation. We get to participate in God's deliverance for the world. Because you become his body. Because the word became flesh, and now the word lives on in us, his body. That's a powerful understanding, church. When we grasp that we have a task, and you aren't alone in it. It's an invitation to God's community. In Christ, we move out into the world on task to be his body. And to live a kingdom cross-shaped life together that tells the story of God's deliverance so strong that people can't not want to join. They see the incarnational witness of Jesus' powerful redemptive plan working through the community of believers who participate in the acts of deliverance that people in the world say there's another way to live. And it's, it's not disconnected from this story of deliverance. Church, we have a powerful witness as the community of believers if we can grasp this. Like anything, if we disconnect from the story, it becomes individualistic. Egoism is a, is a devastating thing to the church because when we sing songs, when we lose sight of why we're doing it, it just becomes about songs. When we come and serve and we're just doing because we have to, we lose sight of the story. The story is the church together living the witness of Christ in this deliverance. And I believe that communion is the participation act that helps us remember who we are as a church. We're getting close. For first century Jews, who you ate dinner with, lunch with, meant a lot. Who you invited to sit around the table said something about you. And it's why when Jesus sat with sinners and tax collectors and they said, look at him sitting and eating with the, the sinners. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he ate at a table with everyone who wasn't allowed in community. He sat and ate with them. He had food with them. That's why Peter got himself in so much trouble because he disconnected from the Gentiles and was eating with the Jews. And Paul's like, what are you doing, man? Which would have been hard for Jews because the Gentiles were like 
the worst people for them. So think about them and their story, and then we have to understand it in our context too. But for them, it was this, what, now Gentiles eat at the table? That's why communion is so profound. Some of you just can't teach and talk. It's actually a dinner together. Now, the love feast in Jude might allude to communion. I don't know. Certainly in Corinthians, there was this meal that they're eating together and they were doing it wrong and Paul had to remind them that because you're rich, you can come early, but the poor people who had to work long hours and get permission to come away from their masters to even come to church, by the time they get there, you've drunk all the wine, eaten all the food, you're half cut, you're not even making space at the table. Paul had to say, guys, you're getting it wrong. And this is, again, this whole reminder of the high places low, the low places high. At the communion table, everyone is welcome in terms of those who are participating in the redemptive plan of God. There's an invitation to all. That's why there's diversity at the table. That's why communion is not about you and your sin. While it is, it's not just. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Of course it's reflective and of course it's thankfulness about sin. But when you just do it about you, we forget the biggest story of around the table, the diversity there's neither male, female, Jew, Greek, all the one in Christ Jesus. It's just pointing towards this body that is the church that lived the redemptive plan of God. And we come back to this first story, and this is where I'm going to close, and we're going to take communion. Because I think you get the point. And we come back to that first story that I read. And why communion is so powerful to me. Because you've got to remember, these, these guys walked two hours away on the wrong path. Because they were disillusioned. Jesus didn't meet their needs, what they thought he was going to meet. I don't know if you can identify, you know, where you're just going along and you have this idea and God doesn't show up and you just find yourself walking along. You, you know Jesus, you're talking about Jesus. They walk a couple of hours. Jesus challenges them and then teaches them from the Old Testament the story again. The table and word complement each other. The word of God and the communion table are not isolated. They complement each other. Jesus brings the teaching back, tells the story explains himself in it. They didn't quite get it yet, but we know their hearts were burning. They, they heard the word and they were empowered. But then when he was at the table, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they began to see. And they had a moment there where they excitedly ran back to Jerusalem. Think about that. They'd come away from God. They'd come away from Jerusalem where all the other disciples were, they were there living the life with Jesus, doing the thing, doing the story, being with Jesus, intimacy with God. They were disillusioned, disappointed, and they go on another path two hours away from Jerusalem. They meet Jesus, they hear the story, then they, when they break the bread, they're illuminated and their response is to run back, leave the dishes, and immediately run two hours back to be with God's people to be back on task, to be back in the story that God had established through his redemptive plan. That's the power of communion. It's the power of actually breaking bread with Jesus at the table, is that it tells us about the story again. It tells us that we are part of God's body in which we get to go and live this deliverance message to the world. They run back two hours, they're excited, and they're full of joy again. We read that in the thing, how many of you know joy is a fruit of the kingdom? When we're in the kingdom story, it doesn't matter how hard it is, when the cross-shaped life is being lived, joy is the expression. What did it take for them to see Jesus clearly? It was their participation together at the table with Jesus. It couldn't just be taught. There is something about sitting, stopping, 
and participating in the drama that itself tells the story. And it's the story of God's redemption. One of our values is celebrate Jesus in every area of your life. And associated with that is this idea of having a vision of Jesus, setting our vision in the right direction. When we get off course, when we lose the plot, we become individualistic, we take our own path, we disconnect from God's people. But when we celebrate Jesus, when we have a vision of Jesus again, how many of you know it brings us back into the story? It pulls us back on task. Communion gives us this vision so we can celebrate Jesus and be joined to his people on purpose. We participate in God's deliverance for the oppressed and the poor. These two did just that. At the breaking of the bread, they were reminded of their task. We do it not just to focus on how sinful we are, but that together we see Jesus and we become reminded of the task of the church. We see Jesus, we get on the right road and we go and do what we're called to do, to be a living witness, to bring deliverance to the poor, oppressed, the widow, the orphan. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, all of you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. And the righteous will say, Lord, when did we actually do that? When were you hungry and we fed you, thirsty, gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer them and say, surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus reminds us of our task as the body of Christ through the participation in the redemptive story of deliverance at the communion table, that we get to participate and be reminded of this wonderful job that we have to bring deliverance to the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, those who are bound over the power of sin and death, which Jesus has broken, and to bind their wounds and deliver them into the health and healing of community to which they can participate in the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. Amen? So, in that vein, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to take a moment where we just get to participate together. And this might not be the way we do it every time. This is just certainly for me because this is just common to me. So I know I've mixed things up a little bit at the permission of Pastor Greg, but this may not be what you do every week. But today what I'd like to do is I've actually got bread and juice. And we've got tables at the back there for those in the back. What I'd like you to do is come and meet the attendants and to break bread off the bread to take a cup, and I actually would like to take communion together, just to participate in it together, just for today, if that's okay. So what I'd like to do right now is just, uh, is there someone to just play keys, or I don't know if there's someone that's able to just come and, and maybe just help us. Um, um, yeah, maybe the whole team of it, yeah, at some point. It'd be great if they could take communion, though, I guess. <laughs> but what I would like you to do, this might sound a little strange, church, but I feel like um, if you're able to right now, if you're able, if you can't because of health, don't. Don't stress, don't worry. But would you join me in just getting on our knees this morning together as a church? As we come under the humility and mercy of our Lord, would that be all right? I know it might seem a little awkward, but I think if we do it together, it might be okay. But I know if you've got sore knees or you can't do it, don't worry. Just close your eyes and raise your hands. But as we just, <laughs> it's a little different, I know, a little awkward. I'm going to tell you something. There's something as we participate. I can tell you about communion. I can tell you about God's mercy. But isn't there something about getting on your knees? Where your knees hit the ground 
and you're reminded of God's mercy that you are actually under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just close our eyes together. Thank you, Lord. Well, Lord Jesus, as you humbled yourself as a servant, we humble ourselves before the throne of your grace. And as our knees hit the floor and we feel the, I guess, the pain of our knees on the ground, it just helps us to participate in being humble before you, God, and acknowledging that you are Lord of all. And so we humble ourselves on our knees this morning and we confess that we have sinned. We confess as a church we have sinned. We confess as a nation we have sinned. We confess as a family we have sinned. We confess as individuals we have sinned. We confess that our heart's desire has not always been your desires, God. We confess that we have gotten on the wrong path. We confess as a church today that we have lost sight of the story. We confess as people that we have done things that do not glorify you. We confess that we have not lived as the witness at times. We confess, God, that we fall short. So in an attitude of repentance and confession today, God, we acknowledge that there are times where we've intellectually known you, but today you invite us back to the table to break bread and be reminded of who we really are in you. And so we're sorry this morning, God, as we sit on our knees and recognize that, God, we need you. We need your empowerment. On this Pentecost Sunday, we need your Holy Spirit to empower us to be the witness that you've called us to be. So we just say sorry. We acknowledge you as Lord this morning. Heal our broken hearts. God, heal us for where we have gotten lost. Forgive us of our disillusions and help us to have a right, accurate picture of you again. Now, God, as we sit, church, we can sit now. As we sit, we realize that you sat on the mercy seat and you accomplished the fullness of this deliverance. And now we sit in the truth of your grace. We sit in the mercy of God. We sit as an action of rest in you. We sit and we say, God, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you restore us and you give us rest. And you ask us to sit in the green pastures, to lie down and be healed and rest. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And church, when you're ready, would you come gluten freeze up the front here, but find a table, take a piece of bread and the wine and the juice and return to your seats. We will take communion together and then we'll stand as our final act together. Well, as we get ready to participate in communion, I'm going to invite you to sit just for a moment. We're going to stand as our final act today before we get sent out into the world to, to do God's work that He's called us to do. But we're going to remain seated just for a moment as we find rest in His story. As we confess and we acknowledge that, yeah, we get it wrong. We get off path. We get off task. We forget God's heart and His story of justice. And as we remind ourselves of that, we now sit at the chair in comfort, in rest of Jesus Christ, that we are children of God, no longer slaves to fear. He's delivered us from our enemies and He's established us in His redemptive story as the church. And just as we hear that, we remember that we're realigned to the right desires of God as we align ourselves around Jesus. Communion is all about Jesus, all about Him. He points to Himself in this story as the one who will deliver, the ultimate deliverance. So we see Jesus and we're reminded of that. And as we remember the juice, we remember it's a symbol of the blood that really was poured out for us. 
for the deliverance from our sin, from the power of sin and death, from oppression into freedom. And then the breaking of bread is a symbol of the body to which we are all now joined. So let's pray as we take the bread first under this blessing. Lord, as we take this bread, we remember that you are the bread of life. You feed our souls, you nourish our hearts, and you give us sustenance to run the race before us. As we break the bread, we feel the softness of your love for us. We smell the fragrance of your grace that you release afresh every day. We thank you with all our hearts for the great price you paid when you were crucified on that cross for us. Yet just as the yeast has caused this bread to rise, you rose again, triumphant over death as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings forever and our beloved Saviour. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's eat. blessing over the cup as we remember the blood that was poured out for us. And Lord, as we drink this wine, this juice, we remember that you are the giver of life. You are forgiveness. You bring deep peace to our souls and your love flows in us. As we pour out the wine, we see the sacrifice that you poured out for us. We notice the depth of your goodness and the pain that you suffered for us. We dwell upon the intricacy of human life and the price you paid to set humanity free. Yet just as the tomb was rolled away to unleash the risen Lord, your light shines in our hearts now, extinguishing all darkness to release heaven's blessing upon your church. And for that, we thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's drink together. final act, I'll invite you to stand. We're going to sing together, but I want to just read a benediction over us as we stand now. As the redeemed, reminded believers, reminded of the story of God's plan for us as His church, we now stand ready to be sent, ready to go into the world to do the works God has already prepared for us to do before the foundation of the earth. As the masterpiece, handiwork of Jesus Christ, Ephesians says, so 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And the church said, Romans 15, 5 to 6 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the church said,